Geekville Radio. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. This is a new era, kind of a new dawn, a new series in the Geekville Radio family. My name is Seth, a.k.a. Xandrax, the mayor of Geekville and the host of Geekville Radio. And we are introducing a new show under the Geekville banner. And I, I don't have to do this alone. Joining me for this inaugural segment, this inaugural show, is Crazy Train Jonathan Bullock. All aboard, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, this is an idea we bandied about and we came into, unusually came to a consensus that this should be the first show of this, uh, new title under the Geekville banner. Um, so I'm kind of excited. It's one of my all time favorites, but yes. Seth, I'll let you take it away. We are entitling this show, the lesser known geek hall of fame, which I know kind of sounds like a, uh, oxymoron, you know, lesser known Hall of Fame. But as the name implies, we are going to be looking at characters that might not be A-listers, might not be the first heroes or villains, because we are going to talk about villains, that roll off your tongue. But these are characters that we believe d- deserve to have their annals in history, so to speak. They, they've earned their place in the history of comics and movies and science fiction and, and all that stuff, you know, because either they were forerunners of what those characters became or just they kind of maybe forged their own their own path. And our inaugural entry into the lesser known Geek Hall of Fame as that classic 1930s intro showed is the shadow. And the reason we kind of mutually agreed not only to have the shadow as our inaugural topic, but the reason why the shadow should be the first character that we talk about is just that. The shadow first appeared on radio in 1930, although there's a little bit of a story to that, but then went into print in 1931. The shadow was kind of really could be argued as being the first superhero because he was the first character that had abilities that normal people did not possess. And uh, Train, I'll turn it over to you as far as uh, kind of the concept maybe of, uh, of the shadow, and then we'll, then we'll look into the, kind of like the, 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 the first appearances of the character in, in media, and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll run into the kind of the history of the character from there. What, what do you say? Sure. That's, that sounds good to me. Um, uh, caveat for our listeners, the shadow was, as you know, Seth implied, later after his beginning in literature became a radio broadcast was my father's favorite radio show growing up. And so he grew up in the era before television. Uh, they didn't get TV until the mid fifties and the shadow was his favorite show. He liked the Lone Ranger and Green Hornet and a few other characters we might bring up in later episodes. But, um, the shadow was always his favorite and he really got me into it. He went to our library at the public library in Denver when I was a young boy, I was probably seven or eight years old. And, found old reel-to-reel tapes and 12-inch vinyls that were preserved uh, broadcasts of the original radio show. And I got to listen to them, and I fell in love with them. And that kind of, as I got older, dove into a little more research. Uh, The Shadow was just so cool to me because 
I'd already was reading comic books at this point, and I was familiar. You know, seventies. I watched the Super Friends. I was already reading Spider Man. I was just starting to read Ghost Rider at that time. To see the analogies that could be made and realizing, wow, he came before all these, and I can see some of the ideas that came from the template, so to speak, of the. You know, and we'll talk about all the different things. You know, we wrap it up in his legacy. As we talk about the shadow, you'll see how he became the template for what the modern day comic book superhero was. Uh, and the idea of having powers, his power was the ability to, as they would say in the radio show, the ability to cloud men's minds so they could not see him. So he, he had invisibility was essentially his, his superpower and a power of hypnotism. Uh, I mean, it wasn't a, a power like Superman's cause he was an alien or, uh, you know, uh, somebody like, like, you know, Wonder Woman because she's, you know, obviously a, a goddess or, 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 a, or a Thor because he's a god. It wasn't those kind of powers. It was a power or, that was practiced. It was something he yeah, had learned. Yeah, he learned it. He learned it, exactly. But it was still a power nonetheless. Does that make Tony Stark any less powered because he's brilliant and creates all this tech? No. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, the Shadow to me is just the, the, the prototype of, of what a hero is or what we perceive a comic book hero to be. And as we describe his backstory, kind of in the back of your minds, think about that and you'll go, Oh, okay. That's, that's Batman or, Oh, that's, that's Reed Richards or, Oh, you know, you're going to see the analogy as we go along. Don't you think Seth? Absolutely. I mean, uh, as I said at the top of the show earlier, the character was actually introduced in 1930 because street and Smith was the, the, the publication they made what, became known as uh, pulp novels or, or, or pulp stories. Yes, that's where the term pulp fiction comes from, uh, for those of you that, that may only know the, the 90s movie. In those times, the 20s and the 30s, there were books that were sold on the magazine stands that were fictional stories, usually some sort of action or drama, and the detective story is really what thrived at the time. I kind of sure. make the analogy that the, the detective stories may have been kind of the superhero stories for the kids uh, in those days, because we're talking uh, the 20s going into the Great Depression and, right. you know, outer space and science fiction and computers and all that stuff weren't the commonplace that they were today. So th- stuff was very gritty and, and real world. So, right. It's kind of a, a kind of like you would think um, the term pot boiler came from this, the idea of a slow simmering story that like finally erupted at the end. Um, think, you know, I think obviously Mickey Spillane and the Mike Hammer stuff was very film noir of the forties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. was a lot of the pulp stuff, you know, um, pulp fiction by, by Quentin Carantino is not a bad example of what pulp was. It was gritty and it was, you know, true crime. I used to say air quotes when I say that, but, but kind of, that's kind of what the, with a, you know, a dash of, of mysticism, a dash of sci-fi, but it was, what was the analogy that we made was we were describing one of the episodes in, in our in our in our uh, pre formatting of this. It, it, some ways, some of the episodes were similar to uh, like a Scooby Doo mystery, weren't yeah, they? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, but I'm not you know, not in the sense you take the mask off and it's the old guy, but you know, it's somebody that it seems like it's a haunted or something, and then the shadow finds out, and it's not. It's just somebody trying to get rich, you know? Right. So. And of course, there'd be no, and I would have gotten away with it if it hadn't been for you kids and that dog. But that's that's no, no. It, kind it, of it's, the point. it's it's the shadow turning them over to the cops, and they, you know, justice is served. That's kind of the ending use there. But right. <laughs> but to describe the character, the first incarnation, for lack of a better term, was 
Street and Smith wanted to sell their detective magazines. And at the time, obviously 1930, TV hadn't been invented yet. Uh, there was no internet. Uh, there, there were even movies, you know, obviously you had, you still had to pay to go see and such. So the main medium of entertainment that was available to people was radio. And I'm sure most people, even if they haven't heard these stories, have probably at least heard of the concept of the radio drama because that's what the norm was before TV. So, uh, Street and Smith was the publisher of these detective magazines and they wanted to recreate some of their stories from their books to this radio format to then carry that over. Yeah. Push people out of their house to go buy the magazine. It was right. advertising. It was, right. It's what it was. Yeah. And when they started doing this, the company that was producing the actual radio dramas pitched the idea of having a character introduce each story, which again is very much a trope uh, of, I guess you could call them anthology because these were anthology stories. They were, they were all kind of self-contained um, beginning, middle and end in each episode. And most episodes had different characters in them. So, right. And I believe the magazines themselves would have like four or five stories each, wouldn't they? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And so the idea was pitched to have a character that just kind of served as a narrator or somebody who would introduce these stories and somebody who worked for them had the idea of just the shadow. So the shadow, you could kind of say, was the forerunner to the Crypt Keeper or Freddy Krueger and Freddy's Nightmares or uh, Rod Serling you know, for, for the Twilight right. Zone, you know, where he would introduce these shows and he would only appear at the beginning and at the end and then the rest was what was the show itself. And what happened was the kids or families or whoever would hear the shadow introduce these radio dramas and then hear that they can get these com these comics or these books at their local newsstands. So the kids started going to the newsstands looking for these shadow comics, except for shadow comics or shadow stories didn't exist. So Street and Smith, realizing they had a hit in their hands, then adapted the shadow to their pulp stories. And that's kind of where the shadow first became put into print. So what I think is kind of interesting about this, and then I'll throw it to you train is a lot of characters make their start in print and then get adapted into media. The shadow, it was the other way around. He started in radio and <laughs> then got adapted into print. Right. Right. Uh, I guess more modern examples of that would be maybe a uh, Batgirl from the six, you know, the sixties Batman show mm -hmm. or Harley Quinn. Those are two more modern examples of that, but it, it hadn't happened very often. That's for sure. Um, so like Seth said, they're here, they are, they know they got a hit on their hand. Uh, they hired William Gibson, who I think was already one of their regular writers anyway. Uh, I believe Treat so. Yeah. To kind of flesh out this character of the shadow and make him a character who could carry his own story. And so he did. And, and then all the backstory that we have for the shadow was laid out in these first few years of the pulp magazines. And, uh, we, this is when you really start to see the analogies of what became, you know, years later, the prototype vigilante type superhero. Um, in the, in the, in the pulp magazines, he was originally named, what was it? Uh, Henry Allard, I believe. I believe it was right, Kent, Kent Allard or Kent, Kent Allard. Maybe I'm saying that wrong, right. but yeah, yeah. In, in the print, he had many, uh, pseudonyms. He had many 
yeah. al- alter Aliens. egos. Uh, and he was a master disguise uh, detective without superpowers. Uh, sound kind of familiar here, folks? Master disguise, no superpowers, fights crime. Yeah, he was a World War One vet. Of course, at the time there was uh, it was the Great War. There had been no World War Two yet. Um, so a lot of his skills, you 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 just kind of assumed he learned in the in the military service. Um, and that was pretty much the story. You, here was this guy that was. A master of sky. He was, was a little bit Batman, a little bit James Bond. Are we seeing some familiarity <laughs> here? You know, this this guy had all these these skills, and he would use them to fight crime. Uh, and he, one of his many aliases, that the one you'll hear the most about as we go on, was Lamont Cranston. Uh, Lamont Cranston was his socialite playboy foppish alias. Again, sound uh, familiar? Think, <laughs> yeah, I think he became not only. And we'll talk about this when we get to the radio stuff. I don't think that I don't think that it was any surprise that that was the one they chose to go with when they got to the radio, because I think he was kind of already the, the the fan favorite to begin with. You know, and if you think about it, it's real easy for a socialite to slip in and out of. You know, I mean, if, this isn't street level crime. This is like you know, jewel thieves and and safe crackers. He's only going to find that stuff out if he's running in those circles. I think that's probably why he got. Plus, I mean, you it's escapism. Who doesn't want to be rich and good looking and get all the girls? So I think that, you know, that that fantasy element, the escapism that we read comics for, well, here's kind of the start of it. You see where I'm going with that, Seth? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, me kind of joking and saying is that sound familiar? You know, a lot of these elements here, you know, master disguise, master detective, no superpowers, street level crime, master, the, the, you know. ma- master martial artist, you know. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, these. Wow, are, this is starting really familiar. Yes, yeah, it's it's very much uh, Batman like, and I believe Bob Kane and Bill Finger, who did the the early Batman comics, uh, drew inspiration from from the Shadow. Yeah, I cannot remember the exact episode of the radio show, The Shadow, but I think it was the uh, the Mystery of the Chemical Syndicate. I believe was the name of the episode. It was one of the early ones. They essentially stole the storyline of that shadow radio episode for the backstory of Batman. Yeah, that makes sense. So, I mean, that's how they, they, they don't deny the fact they were influenced heavily by Gibson and his early stories of the shadow. Now, train one of the things we, we talk about when dealing with characters, heroes, villains, or whatever, there is that trope that kind of came along or the terminology, especially from the D and D books of the, the alignment uh, you know, the lawful good, the the chaotic good and such, uh, all through evil. Uh, I think the shadow would probably fall into maybe the chaotic good uh, type where he fights outside the law. He's obviously a vigilante, but yet he's fighting for the law. I mean, does that seem fair to say, or do you think he fits under a different alignment? No, I, I, I kind of agree with that. I think that almost anybody who's a vigilante could be classified as chaotic because, like you said, they're going outside the law. But that would also lead me to maybe say he's he's neutral good because— I don't think he wants to work outside the law. He just kind of is forced to. And he definitely has his own code of ethics and morals. I mean, the Shadow's a very moral character. Mm-hmm. So he's somewhat ambiguous where law and order is concerned, but he's definitely good. So neutral good, chaotic good. I mean, I guess you can flip a coin and decide, you know. He's not lawful good, that's for sure. Right. In Captain right. America, he is not. <laughs> yeah. After the character was brought into books, there were also comic adaptions. And like a lot of titles in those days, there really wasn't any set continuity. It's like what I, what I was saying before about uh, them being a- anthology titles. So 
there were differences between the print version that was in the comics and in the 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 books there there were elements of that character that were different than what was in the radio show like probably the most obvious one being the name Kent Allard versus uh, Lamont Cranston but right. the radio show incarnation really is kind of the one that everybody thinks of when they think of the character right. and that is the one that had the hypnosis uh, elements right. part of that is because uh, Gibson himself was a bit of a magician so he right. kind of knew I don't really want to say tricks of the trade but his interest in magic and being a magician I think kind of influenced his creation of the character and the radio show I think is also really where a lot of the elements came from I mean right that 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 became what the character became essentially because after a couple of years I think it was around 1935 1936 uh, might have been a little bit later than that you might know better than me train but that was really mm-hmm. when they had just outright changed the format of the radio show to be introduced by the shadow to being adventures of the shadow I mean does that does that right. sound about right yeah, about 35. I think 38 was actually when it really started. But it was 35 they were headed that way. And and, I, and one of the things I've heard Gibson say, of course, he's sadly no longer with us, but I heard him say in an interview that I watched years ago that part of the reason he went with the, 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 the I could hypnotize, you know, cloud men's mind so they could not see him was the, the what they always use in the intro uh, when they gave the backstory was simply there were people at the radio going, how are we going to describe people – not seeing him. How's he not getting caught? How's he? How is all these gunfire going off? And he doesn't get hit. And he's like, "Well, I'll just make him invisible. He can't hit what you can't see." You know, <laughs> so it was it was kind of mm-hmm. a kind of a cop out that wound up becoming his superpower. Um, you know, it, it's this time that you're talking about though with the pulp magazines and the move over to comics. The what we what's the common you know iconic visual of what the shadow looks like because obviously the people listening to radio were just visualizing in their mind was based on the covers of these pulp magazines and in the comics. And the traditional look of the shadow is a guy who wears a, a nice suit with this long black cloak uh, that's cow, like a, like a, almost like a duster or a trench coat or even like, you know, uh, that kind of coat with a scarf wrapped around the bottom of his face. You can only see his eyes and a big black fedora. And he dual wields to Colt. Colt 45s, you know, old 1911, you know, military sidearms. Yeah, not to get too uh, personal here or too much into my own history, but those are some of my favorite weapons to fire, quite frankly. And yes, I know well, from I experience. Mean, <laughs> and I mean, well, they were so good. Our, our, our military gave them as the, you know, that was the typical sidearm of an officer from 1911 until I think it was like the mid 2000s. They finally got rid of them and upgraded mm-hmm. nine millimeters. So how, over almost a hundred years, they were pretty reliable firearms. Um, but that's the iconic picture of the shadow. You know, the fedora, the, only the eyes because of the red scarf, the black, you know, cow duster, the dual wielding 45s. That's the that's the vision of the shadow from, you know, and, you know, what you kind of see uh, transpire as we move on to what he looks like. You know, uh, when we get into later, you know, when we get into actual movies and television and stuff like that. Um, but if you think about it, that kind of looks like a superhero. Think about think of the question. That's similar to the question, or Rorschach mm-hmm. was Mollett's question. In fact, in early Batman comics, Batman used a gun. A lot of people don't know that. And he used a forty-five. Uh, once again, because Bob Kane and Bill Fear said, well, we were modeling him after the shadow. You know, there you go. Uh, I think in some of the later comics, and we'll talk about that later, I think even the cloak might have even had like some some uh, you know, Kevlar in it or something like that. But, you know, everything progresses and, and you know, 
changes for times. But for the 1930s, that was it. You know, I mean, it was this really, really, I just think the look of the shadow is one of the coolest looking good guys of all time. What say ye, Seth? Absolutely. I mean, it, it's one of those things. Uh, it almost looks like something out of a horror trope, but yet this is the good guy mm-hmm. where all you see are those eyes, usually I think depicted as being green. Uh, and then the, you know, the big nose and the scarf. And then of course you got the, right. the wide brimmed hat. And, mm-hmm. you know, that intro we heard at the beginning with, with the laugh, but yet he's the good guy. Right. Uh, we talk about all the time on Geekville proper, you know, the, the, the surge of anti-heroes in the eighties, the shadow might've been the first anti-hero. He really might have been this dark, gritty, kind of uh, above the law good guy who used guns and uh, he, he wasn't afraid to use uh, fear and intimidation tactics. Once again, that should sound familiar, right? <laughs> so, so like Seth said, you know, 1938, 35, he was starting to get ready. By 38, Mutual Broadcasting, which was one of the big uh, radio broadcasting companies, jumped full into a regular shadow show that were 30-minute episodes, which was pretty common at the time for radio dramas where the shadow was not just the narrator, but the actual character we had fleshed out. Now they dropped the, the, you know, the, the Kent Allard and it was just Lamont Cranston. And this is the stuff I think most people like myself. And I mentioned earlier, really got into, into, into the shadow, this mm-hmm. radio drama. Um, they, there were a multitude of actors that played the, the shadow, a very young Orson Welles. I want to say maybe he was 22 or 23 years old was yeah. the original shadow. Yeah, I just think about that—a young, up-and-coming actor named Orson Welles. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, what, yeah I, I think he did pretty well for himself. I mean, I think he went on to like direct what's generally regarded the greatest movie of all time. <laughs> but <laughs> I digress. Uh, you know, and a lot of the the elements of that hadn't really been fleshed out, or maybe even the tropes would be the better better word to say, from the pulps and the early comics become begin to get fleshed out in, in the in the radio show, but. After Orson Welles, there's another veteran radio voice actor named Bill Silverstone who does it. Uh, there was a guy named uh, Brett Wolverton who was my personal favorite. Uh, he he actually played the shadow longer than anybody else because he did it twice. Uh, he did it and combined his two runs out up to 10 years because the shadow ran for almost 20 years on the radio. It essentially ran from 38 until TV took over in the mid-50s, like 55, 56, somewhere in there. Yeah, I think it sounds uh, about mean, right. And that's, that's crazy when you think about how long a run that is. Another uh, note, noteworthy shadow from the radio days with John Archer. He did some of the later stuff in the late 40s and early 50s. Um, I think the green eyes that we see um, uh, a lot comes from Brett, Wol- Brett Wolverton because I think he had green eyes. So it would make sense. They'd take the guy who's voicing him at, and kind of model him, his physical appearance after that. Um, but these are... The, they're readily available to listen to. Like I said, they're they're available on on um, CD, on vinyl. You can look them up on Amazon Prime. You can look them up on anywhere that you you get recorded stuff. They sell them. I, I think even I think maybe even iTunes or Google has some stuff. You know, uh, and a lot of them are also available just to listen to on YouTube. Right. Um, and it, 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 there's. The whole website's dedicated to the shadow. Wikipedia has a, a list of all the, the radio episodes. So it's very readily available, but they are darker, uh, darker by the thirties and forties standard. But the names of the, uh, of the episodes are, I mean, the cavern of death, devil from the deep, you know, uh, the, the mansion of madness, the flaming skull. They're very dark and mysterious. And the, the um, 
and, and, and the elements that the, that are fleshed out in the radio show, I think are, are also, you're going to get to see analogies again. He was just a man, even though he had this ability to cloud people's minds, he was, he had a, you know, a, 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 a cadre of, of support help. Uh, does this sound familiar? Other heroes helping him out, you know? He had a mm-hmm. network of operatives, as he called them. Uh, some of the more famous, probably the most famous, would be Margot Lane, who was his female companion. Uh, it was alluded to a, a romantic involvement, but nothing, you know, ov- no overtly at any time. And I think Margot Lane would be very popular in today's world with the, the, the social climate of today. She was not a damsel in distress. Lamont saw her as an equal. She was she was just as involved physically and gathering clues and helping solve cases as he was. Uh, she was a strong, independent woman. She she wrote for a newspaper that should also sound familiar. <laughs> the love interest of the hero being a newspaper female newspaper reporter with the last name Lane. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Just just saying, you know. Uh, yeah, exactly. But she was his most famous, and I think that that you know a lot of people think well back in the 30s all the women were, were damsels in distress. Not Margot. No. No, not Margo. Absolutely right. I remember hearing a couple episodes when I was very young from uh, that were on a cassette tape, and mm-hmm. yeah, there there were times where she would think of things before he did. You know, if, right. You know, then that that's I think when you when you look at it in those days, like you said, the thirties. And the sexual politics were very different back then than they are now. Right, right. Long right. before ERA and women's lib movement and all that stuff. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, you, you could kind of take the Margot Lane character and look at her as being kind of the girl power of her day. Right. She was. She, she, really, she really was. Margot, depending on which source you look at in the radio show, she was a, a, a contemporary of Lamont. I believe they went to college together. It was the connection in the, in the radio show, if I remember right. But the the vast majority of his web of operatives were people that the shadow had saved, and then they would owe him, so he would put them in his employ. And some of the more notable ones that you'll see across multiple episodes would be Mo Shrevnitz, known as Shrevy. He was a Jewish cab driver in New York because the shadow was based in New York. We forgot to mention that. Um, of course, a cabbie would be a great guy to have an ear to the ground. Uh, he had uh, a, a radio operator that was back at his hideout called Burbank yeah, that would keep the radio. You know, uh, he had a, a contact through university. It was a doctor. Uh, I can't think of his name right now. Doctor 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 Wan, I believe. Doctor Tam, who was his connection in Chinatown. And um, in fact, the very first one that I can remember is actually from the very first radio episode with Orson Welles. His name was Harry Vincent. He was a guy who was going to jump off the, the Brooklyn Bridge, and the shadow talked him down, and so he owed him, and he became one of his operatives. But that was, you know, those were uh, kind of kind of his, you know, his his typical um, web of, of operatives. He had um, operatives within the police force because he, like a lot of vigilantes in comics, once again, set a template, was hunted down by the, by the police at the beginning of his career. But as time in the radio show went on, they began to trust him, and he became a, an ally to the police. Um, the, the the biggest one would be uh, Detective uh, Joseph Cardona. He was a detective in the police department. He was one of his operatives. And I cannot remember the character's name, but he shows up all the time. He was actually the, jan- the after-hours janitor at the police precinct. And he would be the one that would open locks so that the shadow could get in and check police records, that kind of stuff. And two of the biggest uh, that he would use outside of the the shadow, but when he was at when you know he was in his alias as Lamont Cranston, where his uncle, 
uh, who who was uh, Wayne White Barth, who was the publisher of one of the big big newspapers there in New York, and uh, police commissioner Ralph Weston. And um, Barth was depending on which radio it wasn't there was some continuity. Sometimes he was a police commissioner as well. Sometimes he was a newspaper owner. Didn't matter. Well, Wayne Wright was Krantz, was Lamont's uncle. And they would all go to the Cobalt Club, which was a uh, you know nightclub, a jazz club of that era. And he would be in his foppish, you know, boy uh, playboy persona, and they would be talking about cases, and he would gather information that completely oblivious to the fact this guy's the shadow. That was always a comedic effect, and they, they would talk about, boy, if we could catch that shadow, you know, and 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 and, and they would ask, you know, Lamont, and Lamont would laugh, and I'm, oh yeah, he's crazy. That should sound familiar about uh. You know, to some other things and how the police dealt with. Does that sound familiar to you, Seth? That that mm-hmm. that particular, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that was just that was that was the supporting cast, and they were very much important. I mean, obviously, the shadow's the main dude. He's the one that goes in and, and goes into the hail of bullets. But you know, he doesn't. He's he he doesn't have super hearing. He can't hear everything. So he had all these operatives. And then, of course, the other thing once you talk about his support group would lead to the opposite, which was his villains and like comic book characters that he inspired. He had a litany of of uh, villains as well. The most well known was probably Shiwa Khan, who was supposed to be a direct descendant of Genghis Khan, who uh, also came from the same part of the Orient where he, or excuse me, you can't say the Orient anymore. That's politically, that's politically, from Southeast Asia, <laughs> uh, who also had mastered this ability to cloud people's mind. But that was his Joker essentially. But he had others. He had a lot of mad scientists. He had a lot of. Uh, mystical he had a lot of of, of like uh, organized crime kingpins i remember there was one i can't remember his first name but his street name was the prince of death or the prince of evil something like that he was a, he yeah. was a mob boss and he had a voodoo master uh he had one called the wasp no not janet van dyne but that was another and another thing i find fascinating and i remember this from the later years the john archer years like 47 48 49 there was a like organization that he fought called the hand long before you know marvel created that into a, a group of ninjas they were uh, similar to like say chaos and get smart but they were you know a, a an organ a group of organized criminals mm-hmm. and he they were they were another common villain for him and uh there were also episodes in the radio show that that were standalone uh they, they might not have been recurring characters but going back to kind of the maybe the darker more horror-like elements uh, there were episodes where the shadow had to deal with stuff like vampires or or werewolves. I, I shouldn't say vampires per se. It might, might have been somebody masquerading as a vampire, but I know there was an episode or two of the radio show that dealt with werewolves and and these oh, kind of supernatural type characters. Yeah, they were vampire ghosts, you know that kind of stuff. Demons. Yeah, there were a lot of horror elements too. Uh, those were the ones that often became the Scooby Dooish ones, you know, where at the end it winds up being somebody in a mask. Just mm-hmm. using it to scare away people for something. Uh, I remember there was even one episode called The Flaming Skull that was a John Archer one from 47 where they were dealing with issues of the time, 1947. This is right after the bomb. This guy, this this per, this character, the villain appeared as a flaming, a flaming skull and skeleton. And come to find out, he was actually a scientist who had been exposed to radium. He was, irra- he was irradiated. And that's why he was causing cameras to the film to you know, be destroyed and stuff. So they were even dealing with, you know, what was actual fears of the time, if you think about it, which is once again, another trope. <laughs> you have comic book writers, write things about whatever current. So mm-hmm. anything you want to add about his supporting cast or his enemies from the radio days? 
Well, I did see uh, a list of enemy characters here uh, from the Wikipedia page. And by the way, uh, the show notes for this episode are going to be available at geekvilleradio.com slash shadow. If you just go to geekvilleradio.com slash shadow, I'm going to put links to all the stuff that we're talking about here, including links to the episodes and uh, and articles and such. But just reading this list uh, definitely sounds like something out of a silver or golden age uh, list of, of villains. I mean, there's uh, the Death Giver, Gray Fist, Black Dragon, Silver Skull, uh, <laughs> the Black Master, Gray Ghost, Dr. Z, you know. <laughs> Things that would make Stan Lee jealous, right? <laughs> right, right. Well, I mean, well, we already talked about the radio show ran its course, and that led into a little bit of the, the, the short-lived television attempts. Uh, I think you have some information on the TV stuff, don't you, Seth? Yeah, I'm not that familiar with that. Yeah, there, there were, I believe, two attempts at the TV show. One just outright being called The Shadow, and that did make air. And then there was another attempt after that in, in the 50s that was called The Invisible Avenger. And according to Wikipedia, it actually never aired. Uh, but it was released as a theatrical film called Bourbon Street Shadows. And that was the one that took place in New Orleans, wasn't it? Yes, yes. So if you if you seek that out, that was actually episodes originally intended for TV broadcast that were adapted for uh, a feature film. And, you know, that wasn't unusual at the time. A lot of what we think of as like classic vintage early days of television actually were radio shows. I love Lucy, mm -hmm. Amos and Andy. You know, those were radio shows that were hits as radio shows that became The Lone Ranger. Those were radio hits that became television shows. So it, it was only natural that the TV people would, you know, that Shadow was a big hit. I mean, Shadow as a radio hit was comparable, let's be honest, to, you know, uh, NCIS, Law and Order of today. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. I mean, it, it ran for 20 years. And I think really the only thing that stopped it from continuing as a radio show was because TV came along. And it only makes sense that they would uh, try to adapt the character for TV. The, the first attempt was in 54. I don't know if episodes exist, but yeah, so 54 and 58, those were the, the years that they tried to do a shadow TV show, but it looks like both, uh, both attempts failed. And I wonder personally, as iconic as the look we've talked about the shadow with the, the fedora and the scarf and everything, what was one of its strengths for radio, the fact he could go invisible probably was to its detriment in the early days of limited special effects. In, in a television show, wouldn't you think? I'm speculating here, folks, but I mean, I'm just, what do you think, Seth? I think it's very possible because nowadays you can do things where, you know, the scarf might just be animated. It just might be CGI, so you can have it wave and flare around however you want. Whereas right. in those days of live action, uh, well, you had to turn on a big fan and that scarf's going to wave wherever it's going to wave. Right. It's just, it's. I say it was a strength for radio, but probably heard it when he got television. But, you know, I digress. Well, here, here's really where I think after the failed television attempts are when the comic, you know, comic books are really start because we're we're really on the precipice of what we would call the Silver Age of comics. You know, that, that would be, you know, 63, you know, Fantastic Four, Justice League. That's when the, the comic book people started taking interest in the shadow. And I believe you have a lot of information on that, don't you, Seth? Yeah, there were several companies that had publishing rights uh, over the years. Uh, Street and Smith themselves published comics in the 40s. And again, that's kind of that 
a pulp anthology type format where the first story of the issue would be a story starring the shadow and then there would be other non-shadow stories from the radio show that would be adapted to comic form and that ran uh probably i don't know if it ran as long as the radio show did but it certainly ran uh several issues for its time archie comics actually had a run in the 60s Uh, i never actually read any of those comics but since it's archie i would imagine they were probably lighter in tone um and then DC actually had a run in the 70s with Dennis O'Neill, uh, who probably most famously did the Green Arrow, uh, Green Lantern stories. And he did and he, had, he did some Batman in the 70s, kind of made yes. Batman back into be a darker character again. Right. And as luck would have it, uh, in 73, 74, somewhere around there, uh, there was a story where Batman did meet the Shadow and actually told the Shadow that he was an inspiration to him, meaning Shadow was an inspiration to Batman, and they also depicted the Shadow as knowing, without ever having met Bruce Wayne, or that actually, he was think, Batman. Right, right. The Shadow knew that, that Bruce Wayne was Batman. And, Master Detective. Yeah, absolutely. And then uh, DC also had a run in the 80s. I think it was only a limited series, but there was a series called Blood and Judgment by Howard Chaikin, who uh, definitely has a lot of titles to his cred. And that was very much a darker, more violent. It was a basically an R-rated take on the character. And Lamont Cranston was carrying, I think it was two Mac Tens instead of the Colt forty fives. And you'd have people getting shot in the face and stuff. And well, this is know. the era of Rambo and the Punisher and RoboCop, so it kind of makes sense. <laughs> right. That's kind of right. where we had got Vault Wolverine. We had gone that. You know, Denny O'Neill is the to me for that era would have been the perfect guy. I think a more modern, you know, even though he's kind of semi-retired, Frank Miller would have a great run if he got a hold of the shadow, I think. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he, he'd be a perfect name for it. But one other thing about that run in 86, where the first issue has that picture of the shadow holding his uh, Mac-10s or Uzis, and the caption is, he's back, and God help the guilty. I mean, is there any more '80s tagline that you can get for an action hero than that? You know, ah, uh, the Re- the Reagan era. How fun was it to be alive at that time? Because we were American, we just kicked ass. We didn't take yeah. no names. <laughs> but one thing I I would add to that. I mean, I know the violence was pretty. Maybe over the top might not be the word, but certainly, like I said, probably R-rated. Is I remember radio shows where there were characters where the bad guy shoots them twice in the head and they distinctly describe as that's what happened. And I'm like, Hey, people are being told that in the thirties. I I don't really see any difference from depicting it in comic book form uh, in, in in Mm. comics. But quite visual at that point, especially if it's a good artist, but you know, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But even as recently as uh, last year, within the last year or two, because right now uh, dynamite comics has the, Publishing Rice of Shadow, and their format, what, what Dynamite Comics does, is kind of the reason they exist, is they take other people's properties. That's probably not the right way to, to, to look at it. They get pu- comic publishing rights for established um, characters. Yeah, yeah. Um, IPs. A, you get, yeah, they get a lot of IPs, obviously. Franchises, yeah. Like, like they did the uh, Freddy versus Jason versus Ash story. Uh, I think they right. have, uh, like, Hercules and Xena and... and uh, t- titles like that, and that's they, they're publishing Shadow Comics now, and they did a recent multi-issue crossover with Batman. It's simply just called Batman and the Shadow, I believe. I have not read it, but uh, when we when we were doing the the research for the show, 
that's when I heard about that title. I'm like, okay, I'm I'm going to check this out. So you definitely have a, a list of comics, uh, probably almost as long as the episodes for for the radio show, just with with all the different uh, publishers over the years. You don't think they would ever go as far as to have the shadow beat Ash, do you? Um, I don't know how that conversation would go. <laughs> <laughs> Boomstick meets du- dual wielding pistol. Like, I don't know. <laughs> if they did, we if they do if they ever do that, ladies and gentlemen, we guarantee you we will riff track that movie, won't we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Anyway, well, I think a lot of our, our listeners who aren't familiar with the comics or aren't familiar with the old radio show, if they do know The Shadow, they probably know it from the from the, the mid-90s movie starring Alec Baldwin. Wouldn't you kind of guess the same? Yeah, I think it's fair to say. And, and I was working in a theater when that movie came out, and I was chopping at the bit for that movie to come out because, again, drawing from hearing some of the radio stuff uh, from my childhood. And I can't say the movie was bad. Now, granted, it's been... A long time since I've seen it, uh, but mm-hmm. I think what they got right, they got right, and there was stuff that I think maybe might have been a bit too campy for its time, like like the way Alec Baldwin, who played Lamont Cranston, would kind of morph into the big nosed uh, shadow. Right. I mean, I know they explained that by it was it was hypnosis, but right. I think people might have been thinking too much like the Adam West Batman or something to that effect. But right. It's certainly not a bad movie. I mean, what, what what it gets right, I think, is is really done right, and I think the acting is really good in it too. I agree. I think it was a, a decent storyline. Uh, I think the diehard Shadow fans like me didn't like the beginning, where the backstory was given he was an opium warlord in you know the Golden Triangle, and that's where he learned his powers. Uh, that was, I think, a reflection of what we talked about uh, of the time, the '80s and '90s, where we wanted all our heroes to be flawed, have a dark backstory. I don't think I think that's why they did it personally. I don't know. Um, I think that was unnecessary. Uh, I also think you had to realize the time period. The, the, the studios were wanting to make pulp and comic adapt- adaptations because Batman had been such a big hit in '89 for Tim Burton and Michael Keaton and Nicholson. You know. Yes, yes. And I remember a quote from Stan Lee when I was reading magazines. I want to say it was Starlog. You know, like the mecca of geekery in the 1980s was was Starlog yes. magazine. <laughs> Right. And it, I think it was a quote from Stan Lee after the Batman movie came out. And I know that I'm, I'm making it roundabout to Shadow here, you know, to kind of keep in, in, in context. But Stan mm-hmm. Lee was smart enough to see that, okay, all these older uh, superhero comic titles, there's going to be an interest in this now because right. because there's money to be made, especially if there's man in in the name. And, of course... And I know you're probably going to bring this up, so I hate to beat you to the punch, but a character like a, like Darkman or right. uh, you know, some of the other characters uh, that really the 90s was not the best time for comic book movies. Right. But uh, and in, in the end, Stan was right, and I think The Shadow got its movie made because of those Batman movies and kind of the quirkiness that uh, Tim Burton right. had in, in his run on Batman. Sure, I agree. I totally agree. You, you summed up better than I could what I was trying to say um i think the some of the other weaknesses of the movie you're right i think they were very they it was, it was an effects heavy movie that was limited by what the effects were able to do at the time now some of the effects in it are still pretty amazing by today's standards but some of the morphing stuff was it, it's not 2018 and it didn't even look good by the standards of the 90s and, and audiences knew it you know it was an ambitious movie it was very ambitious 
It was well financed by, I mean, it's obvious the studio envisioned this as a franchise. They really did. Yes. I think everybody was looking for a franchise at that time. And I think another weakness, a minor weakness of it, which is also a weakness of another movie that came out around the same time, The Phantom, which is, you know, you know, spoiler alert, is going to be is going to be another one of these lesser known heroes we'll discuss in a later episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're both period pieces. Period pieces, one, are expensive, and two, don't always work for modern audiences. Indiana Jones, yeah, it worked. You know, um, For The Shadow, I think maybe that hurt it. I don't know if I would have liked it updated. I, for me, that's part of the, the charm of The Shadow was the fact it was a period piece from the 30s. Yeah, you know? I, I actually think it would be difficult to do the character now because you have a character that can hypnotize people into not seeing him. But what about some teenager on the street, street corner with an iPhone? He's going to take a picture. Right. Know? Or, I mean, you can actually get like infrared goggles now at an army surplus store. So, it's, yeah, it's, it, yeah it's, it's, a tough, it's a tough sell in modern times. But I think those were probably the, the glaring, most glaring problems. But I agree with you. I think the acting was fine. Uh, I think that I'm kind of sad. I hope, I hope that enough time has passed that maybe they'll give Shadow a, a second chance with a different you know, cast, director, script. And with special effects, I think, if caught up, they could be much more effective at you know, portraying the Shadow's powers. What say ye on an idea of a more modernized version of the st- uh, of Still a period piece, but with today's technology behind it. Yeah, I actually would love that. Uh, my dream of doing period pieces, uh, I'm not a filmmaker by any means, of course, so I, I, I know I sound weird saying that, but you know, you, you get the shooting styles of those days, you know, maybe with a lot of panning or, or still camera shots, but yet mm-hmm. the effects are modern day. I think you could do a happy medium with that. Sure. I think that another thing they did in the movie that was, I don't know if it sold well, it sold it for me. Even though it was color, obviously, they still tried to go with that film noir look to fit the period. And sometimes that works in color and sometimes it doesn't. Like the Adams Family movies, I thought did it very well, the way they would shadow, you know, Morticia and everything. Mm-hmm. They would do that a lot in the shadow, and it just wasn't quite as effective, I don't think, you know, where they would do the shadow on Outball's face and do the real big spotlight on Penelope Ann Miller's, which is very much film noir cinematography, you know. I just think I just think it's hard to pull off with on a color. Film the war cinematography works best in black and white. I'm sure you agree with that. I think I've, you've said that before. Yeah, it, it, and especially in a lower resolution, you know, where, right? Where right. it's it's every, not high definition, where you can see you know every crease in the sidewalk or something like that. Right. I mean, in today's 4K world, that's hard to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I so that's probably the best part where to leave off with at least where the shadow is from his inception to now. So I guess to wrap it up, we probably should talk about his legacy and, and things he influenced. We, 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 we told our listeners at the beginning, you'll see a, a pattern going here. What are some of the, of, of the things that you can see as a legacy of the shadow? Well, I absolutely believe the character should go down in history as the archetype and the forerunner for what the traditional, even to modern, vigilante became or should be because again you you got the genius intellect master detective skilled martial artist marksman with guns detective skills and any powers he has are learned not not something he was endowed with and right now just just off the bat you're, you're talking that fits batman that um 
certainly Phil uh, uh, fits the role for people like Tony Stark, who used his brains to create uh, suits of armor. Um, Oliver Queen. Yeah. Um, and Ted Cord. Uh, yeah. Hawkeye. You know, I, I, you could probably even say somebody, like you said at the top of the show, like a Mr. Fantastic. I mean, even if you were to take the stretchy ability away from Mr. Fantastic, he was still a genius level uh, intellect inventor. I mean, there was even a scene in the 90s movie where uh, in the 30s, he, uh, Lamont Craston is hearing the plans uh, of somebody to create this weapon utilizing and, uh, you know, mixing atoms or and something like that and he, uh, to, to create an explosion. And he says, Oh, so you mean an atomic bomb? And like, right. Yes, that's right. catchy, you know? <laughs> and this is before the right. atomic bomb was actually created, you know? And, and, and even if you delve into those superheroes that have powers like a Reed Richards, there's others that are still that millionaire playboy. Their money is as important to their to their superhero powers as their powers, like a T'Challa, like Danny, uh, Rand. Dan, Danny Rand. There's so many we can name that are, that are, that are like that, you know, that are uh, uh, Hank Pym. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's, we could, the list goes on and on. Uh, I think the idea of the dual identity, you know, uh, uh, Ray Palmer's right. another one we probably could throw in there as a, as a you know, a, a rich guy who his money was as important as his, his smarts and whatever. Yeah. And you're starting the, uh, the, to talk the, the dual identity. Heck, that's literally over half the superheroes now, you know, Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, uh, Wonder Woman, right. they all, they all have these alternate identities that they take to walk down the street so they can blend in with right. the rest of us. Uh, yeah, you realize other than Captain America and Wonder Woman, it was a long time before we got a hero who was didn't wear a costume and went by their own name, like Luke Cage. That was the seventies, you know. Mm-hmm. So I mean, yeah, it was it was that was that was a mainstay of comics for what thirty forty years before, and even to this day, you still don't see that many of them. There's not that many Steve Rogers or Luke Cages running around where oh or or you know Tony Starks where everybody knows who they are, or the Fantastic Four. So, um, yeah, I, I totally agree. That's definitely a part of the legacy. I think when you see the influences, you, you have people who are openly saying that they were influenced by the shadow in the creation of other comic book and fictional characters. Uh, Alan Moore's openly said V for V from Vendetta was inspired the look and the character. Uh, I think I can see that, you know, uh, Bob, Bob Kane and Bill Finger. Yeah, the shadow was definitely an influence on on Batman. I, I Sam Raimi wanted to do a shadow movie so bad and could not get the rights. He did Darkman. You know, Darkman was was his attempt to make a shadow movie. Again, trench coat, sidearms. You know, fedora hat. Right, exactly. The, the and, and even if you think about the way he wore his bandages, they kind of were the same as the scarf wrapped around the bottom of his face. Right, I mean, to the point where I mean, it's been bandied about. Since the mid 2000s, you know, 2004 to five, Raimi was going to make another shadow movie. He's as said as recently as 2012, he would love to do one, but it has to be have the backing of the studio and a good script. I personally think Sam Raimi would be the perfect pick for a, a, a readaptation and, you know, uh, take on the shadow. What say you on a Sam Raimi directed shadow that has a 2019, 2020 script and special effects behind it? I would love to see it. And I mean, heck. Uh, Sam Raimi wrapped up uh, three seasons of Ash vs. Evil Dead, so maybe if he wanted to adapt it to stars as a TV show, I think it would work very well there. Sure, it could be episodic. I, I could totally see that. And then it fits in the vein of the old, uh, you know, the old radio show. I think Shadow, because he's a bit dark, he would work on Netflix. Mm-hmm. They're lo- they're losing the Marvel stuff. Why not? Right. Right. So I mean, I, I think the Shadow is 
like I said, I, I got into him because he was my dad's favorite radio character uh, and radio show growing up. Uh, he got me into him by listening to old 12 inch vinyls of the shadow and I loved it. And, and as I, I've gotten older, I've gained more of an appreciation and love for the shadow. I just think he's one of the coolest characters ever created. And thank God for, for William Gibson and the shadow. Cause 80% of what I know and love of comics probably doesn't exist without the shadow. What's your take on, on your final say on how important the shadow is and where he stands in your pantheon of geekery. Well, I can't say I know as much about The Shadow as you do, because you, you grew up on it more. I only knew about three or four uh, radio stories and a, a few comics here and there. But what I like, I like I said before, the character was a trope for so many heroes. And had that character not been created and been created, quite frankly, as I said, you know, like as, like as an accident, uh, you know, we talked before that the best hits are hits that evolve or kind of grow naturally not just organic yeah organic that's that's the perfect way to put it and that's exactly what happened with shadow and i think that's why so many other heroes they have aliases they have um you know, certain set of skills that that line up with stuff the shadow does is because the uh the shadow was the forerunner to all of that and just that alone i think deserves the character kind of being put on this pedestal as this is why we have what we have today is because of creations like this. So while I don't have the personal experience to it that you do, uh, I think I have the respect as a comic geek and a superhero fan that the shadow is that type of character that if that character hadn't been made, a lot of characters we know and love probably would have never been thought of without a doubt. All right. That's going to bring us to the end of our inaugural episode of the lesser known geek hall of fame. And as we've said before, we're not really going to talk A-list characters here, but if there are characters that you want us to talk about, I mean, there's no suggestion not considered. This show will be posted at geekvilleradio.com slash shadow, and there are a comment section there. I can be reached at seth at a1-wrestling.com via email, and our Facebook and Twitter are also at Geekville Radio, and this show will be available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts, the whole nine yards. Uh, definitely give us a listen, give us a follow, give us a rating. We love to hear how we're doing uh, in the eyes of, in ears of the listeners, and I'm always looking for improvements. So, a train, if people want to get a hold of you to maybe get some more suggestions on, on The Shadow or where they could go to learn about The Shadow, or if they just want to talk to you about comics or anything, uh, where can they find you? I'm always available on Twitter at, at crazytrain underscore JB. You think we should go ahead and spoil it for the listeners and maybe give them a, a partial list of some of the, the characters we're, we're thinking about doing in this particular format later on to help help give them an idea of where we're headed? Yeah, I think I think it's a I think that's a that's a good idea to do. Um, we already said uh, the Phantom and uh, I think characters like maybe Flash Gordon, uh, Buck uh, Rogers, you know, characters that their true roots go that far back and maybe some fans may not know. Uh, the influences that the, those characters had. I, as much as I like the Gil Gerard Buck Rogers TV show, that really was kind of a modern take on the character and was a bit different from what the old comics were. Right. Some of the other ones I think we mentioned were Doc Savage. Uh, mm -hmm. We we talked about, uh, let's see, what some of the other ones we mentioned. I'm trying to remember now. Mandrake the Magician, the Lone Ranger, the Green Lone Hornet. Lone Ranger's great, Green Hornet, yeah. Um, 
even talked about going as far back as maybe Tarzan and, and uh, Sherlock Holmes. So those are some of the ones we've we've thought about on the hero side. Ming the Merciless is one we've we've, we've bantied about for a villain. So that you get an idea of, of what, where we're looking. If we if you'd like to hear any of those, let us know. If there's some we left out, uh, the spirit was another one we talked about. Was an early one that we thought about doing. Um, right. So in, anyway, those those are kind of our suggestions. I guess it's my time to mention my playlist for the week on Spotify. That of course I'm on Spotify at Crazy Train underscore JB, just like Twitter. Uh, I'm gonna get a link to that uh, in the show notes as well. This one is classic country. If you remember mine from a few weeks ago, being outlaw country. Uh, if it's not on that list, it's probably on this list. <laughs> it's more of your George Jones, Loretta Lynn, Hank Senior, you know that kind of kind of country. So if that's more your flavor, that's what you're going to find on this one. So Seth will, will link that up for you and, and take a listen and let me know how you feel about that. Give me a follow on Spotify too. All right. With all that said, we are going to shut down the power here in the Geek Radio Studios. I hope you enjoyed this inaugural episode of the Lesser Known Geek Hall of Fame because there is more to come. And we do have our flagship show that is just called Geekville Radio. I kind of call it Geekville Radio proper. That's also available at geekvilleradio.com as well as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and the, the player of your choosing. So, so we'll talk to you folks again next time, Talking the Phantom. skin off my face and was somebody else underneath. You have problems. I'm aware of it.